a little bit of review. Maybe you're here visiting for the first time. Uh, maybe you just missed a week. But we've been going through uh, our con- a confession of faith in the church, and confessions of faith are just basically statements of faith. It's kind of how we talk about it today in a lot of churches. Maybe you're coming from outside our tradition. You might have a statement of faith in the church that you're from. And the confessions of faith are historic. They've been used by the church for hundreds of years. We have the creeds from the earliest church, and we have, uh, in this church, we, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith, which comes from the 1600s in England. Uh, but the tradition that I'm from is from the continent of Europe, and we use the three forms of unity, uh, would be the confessions of faith that my church holds to. The first one that we looked at last week was the Heidelberg Catechism, which is basically a Sunday school curriculum, if I could put it that way. Uh, Catechism is a teaching tool, and the Heidelberg Catechism is simply trying to teach the faith in in basic ways to new converts or children, and it's it's got a beautiful, warm uh, way of expressing kind of what's your only comfort in life and in death, that I'm not my own but that I belong in body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully purchased me with his blood, freed me from the tyranny of the devil, and has now made me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And then it goes from there and it explains kind of, hey, what what would you include if you were teaching a new convert the faith? Well, you talk about prayer. They go through the Lord's Prayer. They explain that. They explain the Apostles' Creed. And they they explain the Ten Commandments. And so we were looking at that last week, but uh, this week I want us to look at really what's the, the doctrinal cornerstone, if I could put it that way, of uh, the Reformed Church on the continent of Europe. And that would be the Belgic Confession. Uh, so we're going to look at the Belgic Confession today. Um, but maybe you're, you're not from a tradition that even talks about this. Like, what, what's a confession? Why do we have these things? What are creeds? And so I'd like to start with just looking at a few passages in Scripture. They're in your handout if you got the handout coming in. But why don't you take your Bible and we'll open up to 2 Timothy. Book of 2 Timothy. And we'll just start by looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I'll start in verse 8, but really I want to draw your attention to verse 13. Second Timothy, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. We know that verse from the hymn, I think, familiar hymn, I hope. 
And then verse 13, what does he say? Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So the pattern of sound words, what is that? You know, obviously the scripture, we keep the scripture, and that's been entrusted to the church, so we hold on to the scriptures. Uh, But it seems like the pattern of sound words, when we see that phrase in scripture, it's likely talking about a a proto-creed, like these, these patterns that people could memorize so that they could remember, what did Christ do for us? Who is God? These sorts of things. And I'll give you a few places we can look at if you... Turn over to chapter 2, verse 1, and just pick up verses 1 and 2 there. And he's speaking to Timothy, who's now going to be a pastor, right? Uh, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. So he's handing down the faith to Timothy, and Timothy is to hand down that faith to those who come after him. Make sure that there's men who are worthy who you can entrust with the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, right? It's by grace, not by works, he just said in verse 1, or chapter 1, I should say. So he's handing this down. And then we skip down to the end of the chapter, and I'll just, I'll I'll read from verse 8, but specifically 11 to 13, we see one of these early sort of formulations. But verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, for the saying is, trust, or saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see, in the the editors of the ESV, at least, I don't know what Bible you have in front of you, they have it offset there, verse 11, or, yeah, 11 and 12. And it's it's seeming to be kind of a summary of uh, what's the faith, right? If we've died with Christ, we've all, we also live with him. We have that eternal life now. We've been born again. In other words, it's a, it's a summary of Scripture's teaching about salvation. If we endure with him, we'll reign with him. And so we're going somewhere. If we deny him, he'll deny us. But if we're faithless, he's faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so uh, Christ is always faithful. And then... I would invite you also to just turn to 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. 1 Timothy 3, 16. I'll read from verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. 
And so you got a little thumbnail sketch of what was the life of Christ. And uh, we see that kind of expanded on th in things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Uh, just a brief summary. Here's what Christ has done for our redemption. Here's what God the Father has done for our redemption. Not adding to Scripture, but trying to summarize it in a helpful way, kind of as guardrails, really. Um, anybody have questions about what I'm, what I'm arguing here? This may sound a little new. I would invite you, if you have never... Uh, dealt with creeds or confessions. This is one of the books in the library. I'm plugging it. It's from one of uh, your ministers, Dr. Carl Truman. Uh, the creedal imperative. He says, what if no creed but the Bible is unbiblical? It's kind of uh, provocative, right? <laughs> Maybe we've heard that before. No creed but the Bible. Is that unbiblical? The role of confessions and creeds is the subject of debate within evangelicalism today as many resonate with the call to return to Christianity's ancient roots. Advocating for a balanced perspective, Carl Truman offers an analysis of why creeds and confessions are necessary, how they have developed over time, and how they can function in the church of today and tomorrow. Really helpful book. If this is a new concept for you, I would encourage you, borrow this from the library. I'll put it back after class, or if you want to come take it before anybody else gets the chance, you can come take it. Really good book. My pastor gave it to me when I joined the Reformed Church because I had questions. Why Are we adding to the Bible with creeds? Confessions? Are we just adding to the Bible? And the answer is no. No, we're not. We're just trying to summarize in a helpful way so that we don't get into funny business. Right? And a good example of uh, that funny business would be the Arian controversy. You remember your ancient church history? I think you guys had a class not too long ago on the ancient church. Uh, but Arius, does anybody remember who Arius was? Oh, okay. Any, you remember? Yes, so Arius was teaching that Christ was created. He was a special creation. He was, he was, some, he was above man and angels and all that, but he was created. So the, the creator-creature distinction fails, and, and it's a lot like what you have with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, but this was taking the church by storm, and people were denying that Jesus was fully God. That's a problem. If Jesus isn't fully God, we're not worshiping the same God. Right? Let that sink in. We confess the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, one God. None is before another. Uh, they're, they're fully God. Jesus isn't half God. He's fully God. And so if we're not confessing that, we're not believing in the God of the Bible. So that's a salvation issue. We need to believe in the God of the Bible, the true God, not a false God. And so the church saw that, and they were like, well, how can we help? 
because the Bible clearly teaches the Trinity. We looked last week at a few places where it did that. The Great Commission was one of the, the easy places that probably we should all have in mind. You know, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One name, three persons. Um, and so that's a good pointing to the Trinity. Uh, but Arius was able to say, hey, I believe the Bible. What's the deal, guys? I believe the Bible. And so the church came out with uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325, and we have the Nicene Creed, and there's been a few things added over the years to that. But the idea there is it's a guardrail. It's a pattern of sound words to keep us in the faith, making sure we're holding to the same Christian faith, not another faith that can twist the Scriptures and so that's a, a really helpful tool. Um, I just had a question here for reflection. You know, maybe if you've been around the block a few times, you know that people can go off the rails. And, you know, where are other areas that you think maybe it would be helpful to have some clarification from the church on? Things like matters of faith, other areas. Yeah, so no creed but Christ. Isn't that kind of a creed? <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's, that's good. The idea that we believe the whole Bible, that there aren't sections that are not authoritative today. That's a, <laughs> that's a big problem. We believe every word of Scripture that is the very word of God. So. Yeah, having guardrails, those are important. Uh, we've probably heard sola scriptura before. Right? We believe in sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the final authority. For faith and practice, and that's what we believe as a church. So, in a sense, that's kind of a creed, right? We're saying it, but the creed we're getting the authority from Scripture, right? And one of the things you'll hear sometimes is just me and my Bible. Right? And there's there's some good there's some goodness to that that you read your Bible, uh, but we don't believe in solo scriptura. Would be kind of the other the other side of the coin. We want to be reading things together with other believers. We don't want to just be off in our own, our own corner making it up, uh, winging it, as it were. But we believe that the Holy Spirit has been with God's people all around the world through all the ages of the church. And so we try to, as much as possible, take that into account as we read Scripture. Uh, sola Scriptura, Scripture alone has the authority at the end of the day, uh, but we're not the first people to read it. And so... That's 
some of the reasons why creeds and confessions are helpful. Uh, but I'd like to just open us up then by looking at the Belgic Confession. So this is, we don't have it in our hymnals here, but uh, I have a copy here I can look at. But this was written in the lowlands of Europe. So the lowlands would include the Netherlands and Belgium. And it was from the 1500s. So remember uh, the Westminster Confession, 1647, I think, uh, was kind of when it was published. Puritan England. The Belgic Confession, very different time period, very different place. You're in the lowlands of Europe. The Reformation is still young. It's 1561. Remember 1517? That's one of those dates we've got to have down pat. The 95 Theses being nailed. Uh, to the door there in Wittenberg by Martin Luther, kind of that uh, flashpoint in history. And so not too long after, 1561, you have a guy named Guido de Bray, a minister in the Reformed churches of the Netherlands. Belgium and Netherlands were the lowlands. They weren't... Things change over time as far as countries and stuff in Europe, uh, but he writes this confession. It's written in French, so the Heidelberg was written in German. The, the Belgic is written in French, so just thinking of how international, again, the church was at this time. Uh, the Reformation was growing throughout all of Europe, not just in Lutheran countries, but uh, all over the place. And uh, they were dealing with persecution at the time. So the, the government, you had the Holy Roman Empire kind of over the lowlands, and they are persecuting the Reformed Church. And they're saying, you guys are no good. You're a bunch of anarchists. You're trying to throw everything overboard. And so Guido de Bray says, no, no. We need to have a statement of faith. We need to make a good confession about what we believe as the church and show that we are indeed good citizens and we're practicing historic Christianity. And so that's really the mission of this confession. Uh, the Roman Catholic government at the time was lumping in what were called Anabaptists. They thought the Reformed were just Anabaptists. Who are the Anabaptists? Anybody remember the Anabaptists? Uh, they, they are not modern Baptists, I'll just say that. Uh, modern Baptists, totally different. <laughs> Uh, don't, don't think modern Baptists when you think Anabaptists. But they did come to believe in believer's baptism. That's an, that's an acceptable position within, uh, you know, the, the broader evangelical world. Um, we, we believe in infant baptism here in this church. But um, we, we understand these are good brothers in the Lord. The Anabaptists were not, they, they did believe that, but they were more like, terrorists at this time. Uh, if you've ever heard about the Munster Rebellion, uh, there were these, they, they believed in this kind of apocalyptic, we've got this special spiritual gift, and I'm a prophet, and guess what? Now we're going to introduce polygamy. We're going to bring the new Jerusalem into this city called Munster in Germany, and we're just going to, if anyone disagrees with us, well, we'll attack them, and we'll bring in the kingdom through violence. So not like the Mennonites. The Mennonites would be like a pacifist version. Uh, they would be sharing, peaceful people, good neighbors, right? 
but the Anabaptists were, they were like jihadists, okay? And I, I remember 9-11, I was, I was in fourth grade and, uh, in New York, and it would have been tough to be a Muslim right after that time, wouldn't it? And you'd want to probably distance yourself from the Taliban, say, we have nothing to do with these guys, they're crazy. That's kind of what's going on here in the Belgic Confession. Uh, you can imagine a government, they're trying to preserve peace in the country that they're ruling, and you have these guys that are trying to burn down the city and be lawless, and so the, the Reformed churches are saying, hey, not us, guys. We, are, we believe in the Bible, we're practicing historic Christianity, and we are good citizens. We'll submit to the government and all things lawful. Let's, uh, let me give you an authoritative position on what our church teaches so that there's no slander and so that we don't get attacked and, you know, hanged, basically. <laughs> um, so the, the stakes were high at, when this confession is written, and it's really a summary of one of... It's, it's playing off of something that John Calvin wrote, uh, the French Confession. It's not exactly the same. It's a little different, uh, but it's, it's very much within the mainstream of Reformed thought. And so that, that context is going to change the way it's written, right? He's not simply trying to give, here's the body of doctrine. This is the truth. This is it. He's trying to persuade. And so as you read through the Belgic Confession, and I would encourage you, uh, to look it up, I put a link there, and it'll be in the, uh, the audio file for you to look at afterwards. But it, he's trying to persuade. So there's rhetorical uh, things at play in how he writes this confession. The truth is there, but he's trying to, to change people's minds. Um, he's saying we're good citizens, and for example, I can read from... Article 9, Article 9 is interesting. There's a lot on the Trinity, maybe even more actually than the Westminster, and there's a reason for that. Uh, Westminster has a great statement on the Trinity, but he's really trying to show, hey, we're not these radical heretics out there that are denying the Trinity, because that was happening. People were denying the Trinity in certain places. So they really try to pound home, we are Trinitarian Christians. And Article 8 deals with the Trinity. Article 9 gives the scriptural witness of the Trinity. And it ends by saying, uh, this doctrine of the Holy Trinity has always been maintained by the true church from the time of the apostles until the present against Jews, Muslims, and certain false Christians and heretics such as Marcion, Manny, Praxius, Sibelius, Paul of Samosata, Arius, and others like them who were rightly condemned by the Holy Fathers. And so in this matter, we willingly accept the three ecumenical creeds, the Apostles, Nicene, and Athanasian, as well as what the ancient fathers decided in agreement with them. So they're saying, hey, guys, we are real Christians. We're Trinitarian. We're not trying to play any games here. And he lists, he's naming names there. Here's heretics that the church has dealt with. We're not them. So that's, that's an interesting thing. And then Article 36 deals with the civil government. Civil government, and I'll just read kind of the end here. 
uh, where he's saying we should be good citizens. Again, this is one of the big points of the confession. Moreover, everyone, regardless of status, condition, or rank, must be subject to the government and pay taxes and hold its representatives in honor and respect and obey them in all things that are not in conflict with God's word, praying for them that the Lord may be willing to lead them in all their ways and that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all piety and decency. And so on this matter, we denounce the Anabaptists, other anarchists, and in general, all those who want to reject authorities and civil officers and to subvert justice by introducing common ownership of goods and corrupting the moral order that God has established among human beings. So, hey, we're good. We're not going to try and steal from people. You kind of had like this communist, anarchist thing going on in certain places. Saying, that is not us. We submit to the government. We pray for you. That's hard to do, especially when they're persecuting you. Right? I don't think so, no. No. Uh, this would be, you know, there's the kingdom of light, kingdom of dark, but it recognizes that there is a, a civil government that, you know, Romans 13, everyone is to submit to the government. Right? We're to pray for Caesar. Um, yeah. And so, a year after the confession was written, a copy was sent to King Philip II, and uh, it had an address. The petitioners declared they were ready to obey the government in all lawful things, but would offer their backs to stripes, their tongues to knives, their mouths to gags, and their whole bodies to fire, rather than deny the truth expressed in the confession. And then in six. 1567, Guido de Bray would be martyred for the faith. He would be killed. Um, and so the confession has been sealed in blood. Thousands of Christians there in the Netherlands in those early days were martyred. They were killed for the faith. Uh, and they gave up their lives. And this is really one of those confessions that it means a lot. <laughs> uh, the doctrine is very good, but there's also that, yeah, this is, this is real. They've paid for this with their, with their very blood. So just kind of a question for reflection. You know, it's interesting to think about how this is written and who it's written to and what it's doing. You know, we have confessions of faith, we have statements of faith, but sometimes it's helpful to make public statements uh, clarifying things like, hey, we believe the whole Bible. Um, when would be a time, or can you think of other times in the church's history where they've stepped up and said, hey, government, or hey, whoever, uh, we need to make a statement on this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that be helpful kind of clarity during COVID that was a tough issue depending where you lived
yeah, Calvin's Institutes is basically systematic theology. It's got a preface to the King of France, Mike was saying, and he's, he's trying to say, hey, same deal. We're good citizens. We're not trying to hurt anybody. We're just trying to live quiet, peaceable lives before God and to, to honor him. And so... Church of England, they've had their struggles, and you had men like Whitfield stand up for the truth. Uh, being born again was a big deal for Whitfield. Thankful for his ministry, especially here in America. Uh, any other any other ideas, things? I had one, uh, just or I had a couple actually, but we have to be careful. Yeah. Very good. The, uh, it's called the Barman Declaration. I was going to read a little bit from it, but in World War II, you had the Third Reich with Hitler, and they were trying to basically say uh, the Nazi Party, the German Christian, quote unquote, this is this is God's will. God's revealing Himself through uh, natural history. Or, Providence, you know, look, we're the master race. Look, God is blessing us. Germany's on the rise. And so the church is basically compromising. And there was a group, the evangelical churches of Germany stood up and they said, no, this is terrible. Uh, it's not quite a confession of faith. They're not trying to add any doctrine, but they are trying to stand up and say, enough is enough. And I, I thought I'd just read a little bit from it uh, just to give you a flavor but imagine writing this to Hitler when you could lose your life. In view of the errors of the, quote, German Christians of the present Reich church government, which are devastating the church and are also thereby breaking up the unity of the German evangelical church, we confess the following evangelical truths. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who dies... Uh, does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way. That man is a thief and a robber. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And they say, Jesus Christ, as he is attested for us in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God which we have to hear and which we have to trust and obey in life and in death. We reject the false doctrine as though the church could and would have to acknowledge as a source for its proclamation apart from and besides the one word of God, still other events and powers, figures and truths as God's revelation. If you've ever studied kind of what Hitler did in Germany, he tried to make himself out to be a messianic figure. If you've listened to his speeches, they're blasphemy, uh, frankly. Uh, it's, it's really sad, but this was, he was sweeping people along in kind of the, the charisma that he had. 
So they said, we don't need Hitler to expound the scriptures to us. We have Jesus Christ. He is the only way. Uh, Jesus, our Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and our sanctification and redemption. As Jesus Christ is God's assurance of the forgiveness of all our sins, so in the, way, in the same way and with the same seriousness, he is also God's mighty claim upon our whole life. Through him befalls us a joyful deliverance from the godless fetters of this world for a free, grateful service to his creatures. We reject the false doctrine as though there were areas of our life in which we do not belong to Jesus Christ, but to other lords, areas which we would not need justification and sanctification through him. There is this false teaching, you know, oh, you can do church, uh, church stays in church, right? Jesus is king of the church, Hitler's king of the state, and never the two shall meet. And so the German church really didn't say much for a long time about what was going on in Nazi Germany. They were tamed by Hitler. They say, absolutely not. We need to stand up for the truth. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all of life, and Hitler needs to bend the knee to Jesus Christ. That was a powerful statement, especially given the context. That's one example. I'll give you a minor example from the United Reformed Churches where I'm a member. We had an affirmation about marriage, right, with all the, the controversy swirling about marriage. Uh, we stood up as a church. We made a very basic statement, you know, about what, do we, what does the church teach about marriage? We looked at kind of our forms that we've used over the years. Here's what Scripture teaches, one man, one woman, one lifetime, this sort of thing. Uh, it wasn't like we're trying to say everything, but just kind of a helpful statement. Does the OPC have anything like that? I, I'm sure you guys probably do. I just didn't, couldn't find it. Um, I know you have, you have marriage and divorce in the Westminster Confession. Another example I, I was reminded about, and this brother knows, uh, Wang Yi, a Chinese pastor from uh, Covenant Early Reign, Early Rain Covenant Church in China. Uh, he was arrested and detained there in China for teaching the true faith of Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you, have time this afternoon, look up my declaration of faithful disobedience. My declaration of faithful disobedience by Wang Yi. Very powerful testimony. A man who's getting dragged into prison and saying, I'm going to disobey the government to be faithful to Jesus Christ because I need to preach the gospel. Uh, powerful, powerful statement of faith. In all things lawful is what so we are to obey God rather than man, uh, if it comes down to it. But as much as possible, we should seek to submit ourselves to the rule of the government, because God's ordained them, right? But when they try to add to the faith or have you deny the faith, things like that, no, it's too far. Um, that's, it can get tricky at times. There can be some really tricky situations that we need a lot of prayer and wisdom for. Well, that's a good, good question, Chuck. 
Right. Right. Yeah, never sin. <laughs> Try to be obedient to the government. That's not what we're called to do. All right, well, why don't we get into, I have one article here that I, I like, the, uh, or two articles there in your handout, on justification. Martin Luther said justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands and falls. And so it would be helpful just to, to look at what these two articles are teaching. We'll look at 22, and if we have time, 23. Article 22, we believe that for us to acquire the true knowledge of this great mystery, which is the gospel, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts a true faith that embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits and makes him its own and no longer looks for anything apart from him. For it must necessarily follow that either all that either all that is required for our salvation is not in Christ, or if all is in him, then he who has Christ by faith has his salvation entirely. Entirely. Therefore, to say that Christ is not enough, but that something else is needed as well, is a most enormous blasphemy against God. For it then would follow that Jesus Christ is only half a Savior, and therefore we justly say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone or by faith apart from works. However, we don't mean properly speaking that it is, a faith, it's, that it is faith itself that justifies us. For faith is only the instrument by which we embrace Christ, our righteousness. But Jesus Christ is our righteousness, crediting to us all his merits and all the holy works he has done for us in our place. And faith is the instrument that keeps us in communion with him and with all his benefits. When those benefits are made ours, they are more than enough to absolve us of our sins. All right? If Christ couldn't do it, what exactly are you going to add to it? Jesus Christ is not a halfway Savior. He's a whole Savior. And faith is not the thing that merits that. For us. Faith is just the instrument. Uh, illustration there, it's a technical word. We don't want to make faith a work. Faith is the instrument that God uses. Faith is falling upon Jesus Christ. It's doing nothing but just trusting in what Jesus has done. You can picture a man drowning. Maybe you've heard this illustration. He's getting pulled along in a river. Somebody stands there with a lasso, throws it in, grabs him, pulls him to shore, saves him. And then what does the guy get up and do? He starts bragging about, did you see how I, did you see how I got saved there? Did you see what I did there? He did nothing. Right? Or did you see how I grabbed the rope? See how strong I was? Why would you talk about that? Why would, and it's the guy on the shore who saved you. He used the rope to do it. He gave you the rope. He lassoed you. He yanked you in. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you didn't fight back. He's, he lassoed you. He's pulling you in. <laughs> yeah, but we can do that. We can make it about our faith, how hard we're believing. And no, that's exactly the opposite of what we ought to be doing. Uh, but we have justification. This is a technical. We'll, we'll go on. We'll read the next article, and then we'll, we'll continue. 
uh, but 23. We believe that our blessedness lies in the forgiveness of our sins because of Jesus Christ, and that in it our righteousness before God is contained. As David and Paul teach us when they declare that man blessed to whom God grants righteousness apart from works. And the same apostle says that we are justified freely or by grace through redemption in Jesus Christ. And therefore we cling to this foundation which is firm forever, giving all glory to God, humbling ourselves and recognizing ourselves as we are, not claiming a thing for ourselves or our merits and leaning and resting only on the obedience of Christ crucified which is ours when we believe in him. That is enough to cover all our sins and make us confident, freeing the conscience from the fear, dread, and terror of God's approach without doing what our first father, Adam, did, who trembled as he tried to cover himself with fig leaves. In fact, if we had to appear before God relying no matter how little on ourselves or some other creature, then alas, we would be swallowed up Therefore, everyone must say with David, Lord, do not enter into judgment with your servants, for before you no living person shall be justified. So saying, apart from God, apart from Jesus and his merit, his righteousness, we're hopeless. We have no hope whatsoever. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died to save us while we were yet sinners, and he justifies the ungodly uh, through grace alone. By faith alone, it's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that's really what it's trying to hammer home here in the confession. And it does it in a way that's really, uh, it, it's not, it doesn't read like an encyclopedia, right? It's trying to persuade. We could be, uh, you know, trying to hide ourselves like Adam, our first father, sewing fig leaves together. It's giving an illustration, saying, no, now we've been freed. The heart's been set freed by the gospel. So there's a lot there, and it can be helpful to have another statement like Westminster that shrinks it down in its catechism. It just says, here's what justification is. It's question answer 33 of the shorter catechism. You'll find that. But does anybody have anything they'd like to bring up with with what we just read in the Belgic while I'm turning there. Any questions on what it's saying? Well, here's Westminster 33. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone saying the same exact thing, just flip down quite a bit, let's get to the meat. That's really helpful when you're memorizing things, to have a, a short statement like that, because trying to memorize everything that we just read in the Belgic, that's a long, that's a long way to go. Um, but the idea of justification is not simply forgiveness, right? We talk about the forgiveness of sins. Uh, justification is way more than that. It doesn't just get you to square one. It's not just wiping out the handwriting against you. It's actually declaring you are as righteous as Jesus Christ now. You've been wrapped in his righteousness. And that's amazing news. Right? We'll never be condemned because 
He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And it's an alien righteousness in justification. It's Christ's righteousness. So when our conscience accuses us, we can say, yeah, conscience, you're right. I have sinned. I've screwed up. I've sinned every day of my life. And I hate it, and I struggle against it. But remember what Jesus did. Jesus bled and died to pay for not some, but all of my sins. And so that gives me boldness and joy, no matter what is going on in my life, to know that I am justified, not in myself, not because God is infusing me with holiness, but because I've been declared righteous in a moment on the cross, full justification. The verdict is in. Look to the cross. That's our justification. But there's a twofold grace there. Uh, We talk about justification. There's also sanctification involved in our union with Christ. And when Calvin in his institutes talks about salvation, he talks about justification and sanctification. He actually, what Mike was talking about with rhetoric and persuasion, he actually reverses the order. Because what, what would you think would happen if you were maybe in the Roman Catholic Church and you're trying to be a detractor against the Reformed churches, the Presbyterian churches, and what they're teaching, the Lutherans, what they're teaching about justification. What do you think the common kind of, let me poke you in the eye, would be from the Roman Catholic side about justification by faith alone? Yeah, faith without works is dead. Uh, You guys are just going to be living like crazy people. You're just trying to make up excuses so you can sin away. Right? And so when Calvin writes the Institutes, he actually talks about sanctification before he talks about justification. Uh, it's kind of odd, but he's trying to answer his critics there and say, hey, we believe in holy living, we believe in right living, but we need to get the order right. And so typically we talk about justification first, because this changes everything. Right? When we understand justification, that we're saved by grace alone through faith, that gives us the confidence in, in all the trials and all our failures because our sanctification in this life is never full. Right? You will never be perfect in this life. We keep striving uh, because we're united to Christ, but that uh, gives us, I think, some confidence. So one of the ways we, we could illustrate this would be salvation is union with Christ. And within that union, when we're united to him by faith, there's two, it's a twofold grace, and we can distinguish these things, but we, we don't separate them because we're united to Christ. And this is going to save you a lot of heartache, but justification is where we're declared righteous. I think I'm spelling right. I'm trying to do too many things at once right now. Sanctification is where we're actually made holy. Um, so this is, this is our struggle against sin. But this is affected by union with Christ. And this is kind of the envelope under which we have both justification and sanctification. So we don't separate, but we do distinguish. Does that 
make sense? Any, any questions there? Because oftentimes we get accused of separating justification from sanctification. But we do good works. We really do. Uh, it just doesn't count towards your justification. Right? So uh, a good tree will bear good fruit. And if you're justified, Jesus Christ says you must be born again. And we're born again by faith, uh, by grace alone. But that grace then, that faith never remains alone. Right? We, we begin in this life to have good works. Uh, and this is God's grace in us. It's not that we're so good or holy in and of ourselves. It's all Christ working in us through that union. I hope that's helpful. A little introduction. You could do a lot more with the Belgic Confession. Just kind of whetting your appetite. I encourage you to read it. Uh, there's some really good stuff there. Full agreement with the Westminster. I don't think there would be any, any disagreement there. Um, but, you know. Any, any last comments? We're just about out of time. We'll go get coffee. Yes. That's a good question. I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, but it comes at it with a different angle. So sometimes it's just helpful to get kind of a, a different voice, you know. Uh, I don't think it covers anything that the Westminster doesn't. I know Westminster covers a few things that the, uh, the Belgic wouldn't. But yeah, it's, that's one of the tough things when you're writing a confession, right? What do we include? What do we not include? Because we're trying, we're trying to draw the circles that we're going to stay inside. Yeah, Anna. Yeah, these are, the three forms are the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort. And so you guys have the, the Westminster Standards here, the Confession of Faith, the Larger and the Shorter Catechism, and they all kind of come from one body at one time. Right? They had a bunch of ministers in England sitting down, and they, they came out of, this is what we believe is the church. Um, that didn't really happen on the continent because it was, you're dealing with a lot of different um, cultures, a lot of different languages, and it, it progresses over time. So you have the Heidelberg comes from Germany, the Belgic comes from really the Netherlands, written in French, and then the Canons of Dort. That, that's the last one that's written. So that's 1618, 1619. And here we're dealing with one that was written in 1561. So it takes, yeah. Yeah, broader time for sure. And, it, and the Canons of Dort, when we talk about that, that, that had a lot of international influence. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that next time. But that's where Tulip comes from, <laughs> if you've ever, the five points, five points so-called of, of Calvinism get kind of enshrined at Dort and then taken up uh, 
by everybody. I mean, they were already confessing this truth, that's the point, but they, they make their way here in the Westminster Confession as well. So three forms, that's just our confession of faith on the continent. Any other questions or things we want to get in before the end? Why don't we pray, and then we'll, we'll go our way. Our Father, we do thank you for the good news of the gospel, that we're justified freely by grace, that we're given uh, the full righteousness. Every merit of Jesus Christ is ours by faith alone. And Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we seek to honor you and sanctify us, Lord, by your spirit and truth. Now we pray. Uh, help us to live holy lives, holy and chaste lives before your face every day. Lord, keep us far from sin. And we pray that you would be with us as we worship you today, uh, that you would bless the word by your spirit. And Lord, help us to be uh, good Christians and good citizens here in this world and to always honor you. Uh, even in spite of the danger and the persecution that may come our way, help us to hold to the, the pattern of sound words, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.